A welcome to the podcast and interview for the Islam Unraveled Anti-Racist Initiative with Resiliency BC. Thank you again, Risa Watt, for joining us for this uh, important interview. And uh, uh, Teresa, just uh, uh, my family, actually, my father grew up in Hong Kong. And oh, wow. so, Leho Ma. Oh, Leho, Leho. Wow, you can speak Cantonese well. That, that's all I know. But <laughs> oh. <laughs> I thought we are going to have the interview in Cantonese. That's my mother oh. tongue. <laughs> my apologies, but my father, he grew up in Hong Kong. And uh, so anyways, my father, he, he smokes two packs of cigarettes a day and he has very Chinese uh, mannerisms and, uh, and he only likes to speak uh, uh, Cantonese and that's his preferred tongue, just like I like to speak English. So, so it's an interesting connection. Oh, that's very interesting. So his mother tongue is Cantonese, right? Well, he he was he was uh, kind of raised there. So my my grandfather he worked with the government under the British uh, uh, the resettlement department in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. And oh. so my father grew up in Hong Kong, and uh, so we have a Hong Kong connection. Oh, so in a way, I have some connection with him because I work for the Hong Kong government as a, they have a call, the Government Information Services Department. That department is doing the communication and promotion work for the whole government, for every single ministry. So I'm the principal information officer there. So we are assigned to different ministry to be their spokesperson. So I was the civil servant for about a decade before I decided that we should emigrate to this beautiful country, Canada. Yeah, so we have some connection there. We we used to be civil servants. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah. Our families have that shared history. So thank you. And, and Teresa, just wanted to, for those that aren't familiar with you and your work, please introduce yourself as not only you're the MLA in Richmond, North Richmond Center, and, and also you have a role as the, the critic for anti-racism uh, in British Columbia. So please introduce yourself and and uh, your personal uh, vision and journey because it's a great accomplishment for you to come to this country and to be an elected official and, and uh, for so many years uh, uh, to be at this stage. So please talk about that. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Ho Sarat. Uh, it will be quite long because I've been in this country for more than 30 years. So maybe I should briefly talk about my background so that your audience knows who I am. Is that okay? Not Please. starting from the elected uh, official. So Please. I was born in Hong Kong. My parents are kind of like, uh, not exactly refugees, uh, but they came to Hong Kong uh, before the current Communist Party of uh, China took over mainland China. So they kind of escaped communism by uh, uh, just crossing the border because uh, my parents were born in the most southern part of China, it's called Guangdong province. It's now called, used to be called Canton. So they speak Cantonese and, and that's why it's easy during that time for them to just cross the border down to Hong Kong. And I was born in Hong Kong, so it was a British colony. So all my life, I kind of uh, educated under the British colonial system. Uh, and then after my, uh, I did my undergrad university education in Hong Kong, in the Chinese University of Hong Kong, and I studied journalism. And because Hong Kong is a small island, so I always grew up thinking that 
as you try to see the world, even though Hong Kong is extremely cosmopolitan because of the political reason, because Hong Kong was cut off from China during that time. And uh, that's why right towards the end of my university education, oh, by the way, I studied journalism. That's why I'm interested to know about current affairs, about what's going on in the community. I started applying for jobs, which can take me overseas because my family is not rich. I can't afford to further my education overseas like many of my classmates because they come from well-to-do family. They can always uh, do their university education in UK or in USA or in Australia. I can't do that. All I can do is to pursue my university education in Hong Kong and yet I really want to see the world. So I applied for a job at that time. Singapore is considered a twin city of Hong Kong and Singapore government during that era uh, Singapore is far behind Hong Kong. They they feel that Hong Kong has a lot that they can learn from because Hong Kong is considered as the pearl of the Orient and is a, a great financial center. So the Singapore was trying to uh, uh, lure the Hong Kong uh, all the university graduates to Singapore to work for them because they feel that well, they don't have to pay for our university education if they can get the so-called cream of the Hong Kong community to work for Singapore, maybe they can raise the standard of Singapore to be the same as Hong Kong. So I applied for the job and I got it. That's the first time Singapore government employed um, communication officer to work for their government-run TV and radio station. Because I, I was a straight A student, then I got the first class honors for my university education, that's why I got the job right away and the salary was quite attractive at that time. So I was in Singapore for three years and I did learn a lot. Uh, it was my first full-time job as a young girl, young lady. I was 22 years of age and I was all along there and it helped me grow up a lot. And uh, because um, Singapore is, is a democratic country, but when it was under Lee Kuan Yew, they have a lot of uh, censorship on, also on uh, uh, news, uh, because it's a government one radio station. I remember a great incident. You want me to share that? It's part Please. of my upbringing. So in nine, I think it's in, uh, let me think, 1970, around 1976, if I remember correctly, I was the early morning news editor then. I was working for the English uh, stream. And at that time, the news come from the, the tellers, the, the fax machine. So at that time in the morning, so when there, there's some urgent news, the, a breaking news, then it, it will be a lot of ding, 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 ding. So I, I rushed to the, um, uh, the, the, the um, I think it's the fax machine or whatever machine it is, and I saw a lot of uh, star there. It's Bruce Lee. So Bruce Lee, I'm sure you know who Bruce Lee is. Yep. So Bruce Lee passed away, and so it's considered a big news in the Western world. But right away, I quickly tried to think, how should I treat this news? Because I was responsible for the morning 10-minute news bulletin. So I know how Singapore government, how Lee Kuan Yew uh, thinks about Bruce Lee. He is not <coughs> definitely not considered a model for the Singapore young generation because he is seen to be taking drugs and he's a womanizer. So I think, but I cannot afford not to report the news, right? So I think 
maybe I should give a simple sentence saying that, you know, the, the Kung Fu star Bruce Lee passed away. And I, I'm, I thought I make the right decision. I put it towards the end as the last news item. So when I first saw my news anchor, uh, 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 read out the news. And after the news ended, we have a hotline in the newsroom. It's a big newsroom because Singapore is a multilingual society. There are four languages and Chinese, uh, Malay, uh, um, uh, the Indian language, and then it's the Chinese language. So there's a hotline, it's a red telephone at the corner of the newsroom. And when I joined the, the news department, I was told by my chief editor that, Teresa, when that phone call rang, you have to run and grab it. Uh, that's that's an important phone that's there. So by the moment my news anchor finished reading the news item about Bruce Liu passed away, that phone ran. So I quickly ran over and picked up the phone. And then the, the person at the other side just told me that, take off the last news item. And then that's it. So I don't know who he is. He did not identify himself. So I quickly called my chief editor. I said, well, this is what happened. I don't know who that is. Should I follow the director? He said, you know who he is? <laughs> I don't have to say. And then I have to take off the news. So I, since then, I feel that as a student of journalism, I find that freedom of news is extremely important. It shouldn't be interfered by the government. But again, <clears throat> <clears throat> Sorry. As a journalist, we need to have uh, journalistic ethics, which <clears throat> I think now, um, unfortunately, many media, I don't think follow that. <clears throat> so that's again, is something that really enlightened me uh, as a young lady working in Singapore. That's why I want to cite this incident. And then after three years, I went back to Hong Kong. And, and because Hong Kong, again, as I told you, is a colonial government. And we were taught Cantonese and English. And we were never taught Mandarin. You probably know that Mandarin is the official language of uh, China. I think the British government might want the Hong Kong pe the young people to be not in communication with the people in China. That's why they never promote Mandarin. When I yeah. was in Singapore, because the Chinese language, they all speak Mandarin. Yes. Lee Kuan Yew is very smart. Lee Kuan Yew know that in order to engage relationship with China, which is a big country, you got to educate your citizen Mandarin, not in any dialect. Uh, so I could not communicate with the Chinese language stream people. And I feel that's not right. I am of Chinese descent and Chinese is my mother tongue. English is my second language. Why do I have to resort to a second language to communicate with people who are of Chinese descent? So I decided that I have to learn Mandarin. And when I went back to Hong Kong, I saved money. Uh, after a, a, a couple of years in 1976, I think. Yeah. So I quit my job in Hong Kong and went all the way to Taiwan. At that time, China is still considered a not it's not opening up to the outside world and uh, uh you don't normally go and visit china because there was cultural revolution in in china so i went to taiwan to learn my mandarin and i stayed there for one year and that's why i'm in a way um lucky enough that now i can speak mandarin 
you know, request a lot of my classmates because they never have an opportunity of studying a language. So I, I am fully trilingual. My mother tongue is Cantonese. My Mandarin is well. It's considered my second language. The written language is the same. It's just a spoken is different. English is my second language. And that's why, in a way, I have the asset of communicating to a lot of immigrants, especially now coming back to my political uh, career, because uh, I represent the constituent in Richmond Law Center, uh, almost 70%, maybe even over 70% are Asian Canadians and many of them are Chinese Canadians and I have the advantage that I can speak their language I can communicate with them because many of them still are not comfortable communicating in English even though they might be able to speak the language uh, because uh, uh, I don't know whether Tara you see a second, second language normally you feel more comfortable speaking in your mother tongue even right now I feel more comfortable speaking in Cantonese and in English because yeah. you can't help it. That's your mother tongue, right? And you don't have to think. I, I don't know whether I'm thinking in Chinese or in English when I'm talking to you, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, yes. Anyway, even though in Hong Kong, when I work for the Hong Kong government, English is the working language. But again, it is my asset, but it can be my uh, disadvantage as well because uh, I speak English with an accent. And people always see me as not Canadian. They will always see me sometimes as a foreigner. And actually, uh, I jokingly say that I'm much older than many of the people that I talk to because I've been, I, I left Hong Kong at the end of 1989. So it's more than 30 years that I've been living in this great country and I never returned to Hong Kong. Um, I stay here. No, I, I'm not like most of immigrants who are rich enough to be returning to Hong Kong once a year. My daughter, she came at the age of six and she never returned to Hong Kong until she graduated from university. And I told her that now I will take you back to where you were born so that you will get to know your culture. And that's the time that I, after, after so many years that I went back to Hong Kong because I feel that if I decided to emigrate to Canada, I have to burn my bridge in a way because I have to spend all my time here to get to understand my adopted country and to give back in return to this country. And, and when I came in, I think I the same as any immigrants. There's so much challenges, even though I do. Oh, by the way, and then after my, um, my one year stay in Taiwan, I came back to Hong Kong and then because as I told you, I got the first class honor and I was lucky enough to get a scholarship from a US um, research organization called East West Center. They gave me a full scholarship so that I can pursue my master degree in University of Hawaii for communication for two years. And that was a very generous scholarship. Uh, not only do I have not to have to pay anything, but they still give us stipend every year. So I save off money. And then when we did our uh, master paper during the summer, after the first year, they pay us for whatever trip we take. So I spent my summer um, touring around US mainland and going from one university to the other to prepare my physics for my master. So I got to get to know 
America and Americans quite well after spending two years there. And, and then I went back to Hong Kong and worked for Hong Kong government. Um, but because of what happened uh, in 1989, everybody knows about the Tiananmen uh, incident. Yes. And I was worried that whether I can pursue journalism uh, because that's my profession. And that's why we decided to emigrate uh, to, to Canada. So that's why we end up in Canada. And um, my husband together, actually my husband was my classmate in university. We both studied journalism, but unfortunately my husband passed away in uh, 2011. And um, if, if I want to talk about why I got into politics, actually it has something to do with the um, wish and stimulation from Stephen uh, Stephen is exactly the opposite of um, a typical uh, straight A student like me in Hong Kong because under our education system, we were not encouraged to have a more balanced life. We are encouraged to have uh, more concentration, more focus on academic study, um, uh, not encouraging us to take up any extracurricular activities, which is not a good education, but it is what it is. But my husband, uh, Stephen, actually was uh, quite active in student movement. And he feels that he, he did a lot of voluntary work. He feels that young people should get involved in the community. And he, uh, he really uh, admires my hardworking, straightforward kind of uh, personality. But he is very critical of me for not spending time to serve the community. So when he was struck with cancer in 2003, um, he passed away in 2011. So we were there for uh, seven years when he was sick. We kept talking about a lot of, about life, uh, what's the meaning in life. So he kept telling me that, Teresa, now you are really under a lot of pressure because my parents are living with me and I have to look after my parents. and." As I told you, we don't come from a rich family. We still have to work to make a living. So, and plus the fact that Stephen was sick. So I ended up as um, like a breadwinner for the family. I, at that time was working as the CEO of the multicultural radio station here. And uh, in between, I started Channel M, which is now called Omni. It's the first ever multilingual news program a live news one with Punjabi, with Cantonese, Mandarin, Tagalog, and Korean. And I was the news director that was instrumental in starting that multilingual news program. So I was starting that program at the same time, Stephen, we heard the news that Stephen was struck with lung cancer and we were told that he only had one year to live. Thank God with his um, determination uh, to survive and I, I'm trying to get all kinds of whatever herbs or whatever, whatever um, medicine I think is good for him. I keep buying those medicine and he managed to extend it for seven years. So he, he, during those seven years, it, it's a blessing because we, we spend time talking to each other all the time. And he was telling me that by the time I'm in heaven and you are free of looking after me and, and your parents are still healthy, and, and our daughter is uh, already near the university graduation. And now my daughter is working already. She's uh, adult uh, and right now. I hope that you can 
think about serving, giving back in return to the community. And uh, he said that you have been so hardworking and you are so loyal uh, to your employer, but you should take time out uh, to, to do some community work. Then your life will be more balanced and there's more meaning in life. So he keep trying to educate me, trying to change me to serve the community. And that was really deeply ingrained into me. So when uh, he passed away in 2011, actually it's very interesting. I worked for the um, uh, NDP government from 1996 to 2001. At that time, Glenn Clark was the premier and I was recruited as the communication uh, manager for the multiculturalism branch uh, ministry under Wujo Dosanji. He was the attorney general responsible for multiculturalism. And because I worked really hard and at that time, uh, the chief of staff really saw talents in me and, and asked me to be seconded to the premier's office. And that's why I moved to the premier office and started working for Glenn Club. At that time, I was still new to Canada. Uh, even after a few years, I still don't understand the politics as much. I never realized that once you work for the premier office, you'd be politically labeled. And uh, um, so anyway, uh, I worked for the premier office for several years. And then in 2001, uh, NDP lost power and then BC Liberal took over. And strangely enough, I was laid off by Gordon Campbell because I was being seen as too close to the NDP government. And, and I worked in the provincial government for uh, almost six years. And I I was laid off, and I my former boss in the multicultural radio station, where I used to be the news director, hired me as the CEO to look after the multicultural radio station in 2002. And then in between, the Channel M, the first ever multicultural TV news station, was uh, um, uh, opening up, and they wanted me to start the news program because I have multiculturalism experience and I'm a professional, you know, media person. So I opened up the, the I single-handedly started this uh, program by employing people from the Punjabi community, from the Cantonese community, from the Mandarin community. And also we have uh, once a week a Tagalog and Korean news program as well. That was a wonderful experience. Again, I feel some systemic racism there uh, because it's supposed to be a mainstream uh, uh, TV station and many of the manage, management people are coming from the mainstream. I'm the only one that is coming from the immigrant community. And in 2000, actually NDP, I, I, as I told you, I worked for the NDP government and I got to know many of the NDP ministers and MLA and they all, I would say they quite value my talents. And they've been asking me to run for NDP. I'm not shy about talking it. And I respect many of the MLAs there. But my basic ideology coming from Hong Kong doesn't agree with NDP. So I politely decline it. But when Christy Clark, the, the then premier, approached me and asked me at the end of uh, 2012, yeah, the election is 2013. So when she approached me, I was talking to my daughter, asking her, well, it's really strange that NDP approached me to run as a politician. And now I decline. And then 
Yeah, Beast Liver approached me again. Should I or should I take it up? You know why I hesitated? Because being a journalist, I pay a lot of attention to politics. I feel that as an elected official, we, you really have no life of your own. You basically have no privacy. You expose yourself to your uh, all the electorate, which should be the way because you are a public servant and you are being paid by the taxpayers. So I feel that I don't want that kind of life, right? So, but then I I was thinking, how come it, it looks like that the political door keep knocking at me? So I talked to my daughter. She said, oh, mom, you are always interested in politics. And you know that that always wants you to serve the community. Maybe that's his wish in the heaven that this is a way that you can give birth in return to the community. So I thought about that and 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 that's why I decided to take up the political career. And that's why I ran for politics in 2013. And uh, I was elected right away. And I have to thank Christy Carr for uh, giving me this riding. At that time, it was a safe, busy liberal riding. And I got elected. And then um, right away, I was appointed as a minister for international trade and also for multiculturalism. And also I was responsible for Asia Pacific strategy because during that time, uh, we we are being, BC is known as the Asia Pacific gateway and we haven't had that much trading with Asia Pacific region all along Canada is a trading partner traditional trading partner of course is the united states and also with europe so premier tasked me with the uh, assignment to try to open up because it's important to diversify our trade uh, in case anything happened you can see how much challenges we have with the united states so even though 80 percent of our trade is with united states but sometimes there's some hitchup that the president might, might just decided to impose a lot of tariff, or, for example, on a lumber. Actually, that's what happened when Gordon Campbell was a premier. All of a sudden, our, uh, our lumber agreement with USA is coming up for renewal, and they are suddenly imposing a lot of tariff, making our lumber not really uh, competitive uh, in the state. And that's why we open up the Asia market, especially China market, and also Japan, and now India. And then we managed to ship some of our lumber to Asia. And instead of putting our eggs in one basket, so that's why I was tasked with this assignment to open up the Asia Pacific uh, region. And when I was a multiculturalism minister, that's what I have my first encounter with uh, how, how much racism is deeply ingrained actually in BC. Uh, the reason I picked Canada as the country that I'm going to spend my rest of my life because I, I in Asia, we always uh, uh, admire Canada because Canada is the first country to have the Multiculturalism Act. And we all know that Canada is, has a proud history of promoting multiculturalism which is quite different from the white Australian policy. And, and, and we are also different from USA. USA want you to be immersed in their culture instead of letting us to preserve our culture. And that's why Canada attracted me to come here. 
But then when I was a multiculturalism minister, I started reading a lot of history. And I was shocked to find that more than 100 years ago, when Chinese uh, pioneers, uh, actually the first immigrant, uh, Chinese immigrant that coming to BC actually are from California because China was extremely poor then. So all the Chinese people on the coastal region, they have to find a way to make a living and send back money to their family. So they went all the way to California. California, the name Chinese name is called an old gold mountain city. They have a lot of gold mine. So they all went there to find gold. And But then after the gold mine was exhausted, they have to find another way to continue to make money and send money back to China. So they went up north and that's how the Chinese pioneers ended up in Vancouver Island. And again, they were looking for gold mines and then after the gold mines were exhausted, that was a time when BC at that time was not part of the Confederation. At that time, the Ottawa government gave British Columbia a condition that if BC can connect across the Canada way well all the way to our west coast, then they are willing to take on BC as part of the Confederation. And you know how, how tough our geography is between BC and Alberta with the Rocky Mountains. So none of the white British Columbia are willing to take on the railway job. But Chinese pioneer, because they actually, they can, they have to do anything because first of all, they don't speak the language and they are being discriminated. So it ended up that I would say that more than 95% of the workers, real workers are Chinese. And it was claimed that for every single mile of the railway, at least one Chinese real workers lost their lives. And actually, BC has to be grateful for the Chinese pioneers. Without them, they, the railway across the country will not be connected all the way to the West Coast. And yet, even though they have contributed so much, because at that time, BC is really a white, you know, province and the white people at that time, they see this people of color as something that they don't want to welcome. That's why they impose a hack tax. The hack tax initially was $50 and even $50, the Chinese still save money and try to sponsor their family members to come over. That's why eventually they raise it to $500. $500 at that time can at least buy one to two houses. Wow. And still it doesn't have any effect. So eventually they have a Chinese Exclusion Act that actually shut the door for any immigration from China. So what I'm trying to, to tell your audience is we have to learn history. If we don't learn history, history will repeat itself. So BC really has a shameful dark chapter in our history. And that's why I was tasked by Christy Clark that I should try to do consultation when I became the multicultural minister and trying to convince all the MLA, including the NDP, at uh, that time, there's one Green Party and one Independent that they will agree for Christy Clark to officially make an apology at the legislature to the Chinese Canadian community 
for all the past wrong that the BC government has done. So eventually I make that happen. But then I feel that if the the day of the apology, we got a lot of media, but I was, I told Premier, I said, that still doesn't work because if this is just a one day event, people tend to forget it about one day. So I, I asked the Premier that, can you let me give me some funding so that I can continue to do more legacy initiative project throughout my four years as a minister, if I'm not fired, at least I will, I can start educating the general public about what multiculturalism is about, about what racism is about. So I'm grateful for Christy Carr by allocating $1 million. So I have come up with a series of legacy initiative projects, including working with the education minister at that time to include the uh, history in the past of what, uh, how Chinese Canadian, how First Nation, how East Indian, how J Japanese uh, Canadian, Japanese Canadian were all locked up during the Second World War because Canada is siding with uh, the UK government. They think that Japanese Canadians loyalty might lie with uh, the Japan government during that time. So they were all of a sudden one day, they just uh, 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 look for all the Japanese Canadian and took them to the interior and put them in internship, uh, in concentration camp and their properties were all taken away and never returned to them. So you oh. can see how, how racist uh, we are. And don't forget about the Kotomara uh, Maru, that ship that took, I think it's over a hundred East Indian from India all the way. There are refugees coming all the way and land after a few months landing in our shore. And yet, because again, East Indian are considered not welcome. They, the whole ship was being pushed back to India. Many of them die. So look at our history. We, we, we should be ashamed of what happened in the past. That's why this is not just to, Chinese Canadian and also Muslim. Look at what happened in Quebec. Look at the Jewish. Today, I just read the news in the Victoria Jewish Center. There's some anti-Semitic uh, graffiti, graffiti there on the day when they try to remember Holocaust, right? So it's the Muslim, it's the Jewish community, the black community, the Chinese Canadian, the East Indian, the Japanese, and the other, I'm sure Filipino, Korean, and actually after this interview, I'm going to talk to Miss Canada for 2020. She's a Filipino Canadian. Uh, she's a young lady, a charming lady. I just happened to get to know her. And she was saying that she was yelled at when she came at the age of 10 because she doesn't look white. And I'm going to talk to her about her experience and what she think about the latest anti-Asian hate crime. And you, you can see that actually racism has never been, has always been there. It's just that uh, the victims don't bother to report to the police. As an elected official, when we come up with policy, we, 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 we normally based on science-based data. If there's not a lot of statistics about racism cases or hate crime, then it's not in our radar screen. That's why I keep encouraging the community that 
we have to stand up and we have to speak out. Because I was talking to some of my younger staff, they are in their 30s or 40s. They told me, actually, they said, Teresa, racism was always there when we were in university, when we are 18 or 19, we are always being yelled at, go back home, you chink. We, it, it's always there, but it just that, especially for, I don't know about people from Middle Eastern country, the Muslim, maybe you guys are more outspoken than Chinese. You know that you, you are from Hong Kong. We are, our education, because of Confucian kind of philosophy, we, we were kind of trying to, to be patient and to take whatever they come our way, trying to have peace instead of having any kind of uh, a confrontation. And so we, we, never, we never think that we should report to the police. No, but we can't do that. Whenever we are victims, whether you are seriously injured or not, you have to report. At least there's some statistics there. And that's why I've been encouraging all victims of hate crime, of racism crime, they have to speak up. And we have to keep reminding British Columbia and Canadians as a whole that we pride ourselves as a multicultural country. And in a way, we are lucky. We are a better country than the United States, I think. We are still considered safe. But what happened in the last year or so that make me also worry and make our community extremely worry. People like us who are Chinese, who are women, will not feel safe walking along the street. I think, I think um, part of the reason everybody knows is because um, people associate COVID with China. And it's easy for the general public to associate China with Chinese immigrants. They all see us as representing China, which is totally not inappropriate and doesn't make sense at all. And many of us now come from China, even though you are come from China, so what, right? So we have decided to make this our home. So how can you try to ally the government with the people who are emigrated from that country? So with especially what happened with the Trump administration, and I do understand the frustration from the general public. With COVID-19 for more than one year, they lost their jobs. They cannot, you know, go out. They have no chance of talking to their friends. They might end up in their home all the time. So husband and wife sometimes do not see each other before that often. So when you are together and when you lost your job, you, you are in financial trouble, of course, there will come a lot of mental you know, problem. And, and sometimes they walk along the street, they don't feel happy about their life. Maybe it's not really targeting, maybe it's not a racist, racism crime. Sometimes they just went up their frustration. And that's why I'm really worried. And, and that's why it comes back to why I suggested to propose our Beast Liberal Caucus, uh, propose that this government declare May 29 as the Anti-Racism Education Day. First of all, let me go back. Uh, let me go back and talk about our overall um, focus. Last year, since this started to rise, this anti-racism Asia crime, our caucus, BC River Caucus, talked about how are we going to really, once and for all, at least try to minimize this kind of incident. We feel that we have to take two prongs. 
One point is to education promotion of uh, anti-racism and the beauty of multicultural. The other point is the government must try to put in more resources for the police force. Because right now our police our police RCMP, their hands are tied because there are so many cases that they have to tackle. So when they are given the racism or hate crime, if there's nobody that is dead that has been killed or seriously injured, they may not take it as a priority. I don't blame them because they don't have enough resources. That's why I think as a government, the provincial government should put in more resources to the police force and give clear direction that you have to treat hate crime and racism crime as a priority. That's one thing. And they also have to increase the resources for the prosecution branch because if the again the prosecutors have a larger assignment in their hand. If the police pass on a case to them, they will see whether this is something that is very serious. And if not, then they will put it aside and work on other more serious cases first. Again, the government should give clear direction to the prosecution branch, telling them that giving them more prosecutors so that they can work on the hate crime cases so that we can put the culprits in jail. We have to send a message out loud and clear that if you commit hate crime, there's consequences. And then I think we need a hotline for us to report racism case. Because right now, you call 911. Again, 911 is all over well. The operator on the other side, they have so many calls and they first of all ask you, anybody injured, nobody injured, they might, they, they, they might not intentionally brush you off, but they might not take down, spend so much time with you, which again, I don't blame them. Then, I, many of my constituents come and talk to me, they said that, Teresa, you keep on asking us to report the cases, but what's the point wasting our time? In the end, there's no outcome coming out of it. We, we are so busy, we don't, want, don't even bother to report. And, and that's why I think a de dedicated hotline with multilingual support is extremely important. So there's one approach on the enforcement side. The other approach is what I'm suggesting. Education like what I did when I was a multiculturalism minister, that I make sure that the teachers will talk about our past shameful history, educate our students that we have to learn from history. At the end of the day, I always say, except the First Nation, the Aboriginal, they are the one that are here from day one. All of us immigrants, we are all emigrating into this country. So you can't tell me because I look like Chinese to go back to China. And many of my friends say, I'm not even from China. I'm from Singapore. I'm from, maybe I have some Chinese friends who were born in India. So, so it, 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 I was telling the white people, if you ask me to go back to China, you should go back to UK or to Holland, wherever you are from, right? So we are all equal. Uh, this is not a country of white people. This is a country of people of all colors, of all religion. So we have to raise awareness. We have to raise awareness of the adult ed in, uh, uh, population. Of course, we have to focus on educating Canadians from young, but at the same time, 
people over the age of 20 are still the majority. So that's why this anti-racism education day is extremely crucial. But this is not a one-day event. I am hoping that this government will follow what I did when I did the Chinese Legacy Initiative. We should have a series of events throughout the year so that after that May 29th, we still keep reminding, not reminding, educating, enlightening British Columbians about the beauty of multiculturalism, about the fact that you have no right to discriminate people who are practicing a different religion, who are having a different color of skin, who are speaking English with an accent. Americans speak English with an accent. Somebody coming from Texas, I can't understand their English either. Maybe Canadians have difficulty understanding me. I hope you have no difficulty understanding me. And people keep saying that, Teresa, why don't you get rid of your accent? I, I got some comment from when I became the elected official. I don't want to quote who is who, saying that, Teresa, I can refer you to a school to get rid of your accent so that you can be seen as more mainstream. I said, I don't want to get rid of my accent. I want to be seen as an immigrant representative. Uh, it's not that I'm, uh, to be honest, I'm proud of my accent. I say if you, if I speak English the way that nobody understands, of course I have to improve, right? But then it, uh, to ask somebody like me who is an adult and I have more things to do, it's not easy to get rid of my accent and I'm not shy about my accent. So I think I talk. <laughs> quite a long time so maybe i should leave it to you to ask me some question i'm trying to to go here and there is is a bit well, not well organized sorry <laughs> well no no you what you've done and your work and your body of work and, and what i really want to applaud you for is your your concern for the other communities even in your professional work uh, bringing Punjabi community, Korean community, uh, Chinese community, uh, all the communities together, Korean community together on one platform, that's vision. Uh, because a lot of communities, they focus, if I'm, I'm uh, uh, from Pakistan or India, that, that's that community, or if I'm from uh, Philippines, I'll, that community. But what you've done is to look at the broad approach. And I think with your experience in Singapore, with that being a, a multiracial society, and then Hong Kong has a, a multiracial society, you, you saw that it has to be a balanced uh, because the same issues that affect one community will affect the others. So why not represent in media all the communities? And, and I, I applaud you for that because that's, that's pioneer that's vision, that's that's uh, breaking down silos, whereas a lot of ethnic groups tend to like to be with their own community. But from what you've done, just even before being an elected official is bringing communities together uh, on one platform, which is really, uh, this is what it's all about. United we stand as all racial community, BIPOC communities that we stand together we face similar issues. We may have different languages, colors, uh, cultures, but, but we share humanity. We're all human beings. And by your work, your, your, your professional work and your political work, it reflects those values. So I, I wanna applaud you. And, and really, I enjoyed everything that you said, all the values that you said uh, we value, that we are Canadian. We may look not like your blonde hair, blue eyed uh, mm -hmm. 
perception of, of what people think a Canadian is, but we are Canadian. We love the country and, uh, and to appreciate our, 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 our accent, our color, our, our language, it, it, to appreciate it and also be Canadian. It's not mutually exclusive. We can do it both because this is what this country, I believe, is about. And But you said something powerful, and this is really what's happening is history repeats itself. And because of the coronavirus and the rise in Asian attacks uh, because of the coronavirus and, and Donald Trump with his rhetoric in the U.S. blaming the coronavirus on, on China and what have you, inflaming people to, to say racist things and not only say racist things, but also attack people physically. So let, let's talk about that because this is in British Columbia. According to the RCMP, hate crime statistics against Asian people has been up 700 to 800 percent in 2020 alone. So let's talk about that and, and some of the work to combat that. One you said is a hotline. The other thing is online. Uh, because the internet is now the real world. What happens on the internet uh, motivates people to commit real world uh, uh, violent crimes. So I would say also in addition to a hotline is a way to report online. And so let's talk about also online racism driving towards real world violence. Yeah, I do agree with you, Tara. Thank you for your kind compliment. And I just want to emphasize again that I try, I try to set an example to the Chinese Canadian community because I speak the language. I keep telling them that, first of all, we need to get integrated with this bigger community. We try to be aware of our environment. I know that it's easy for us to speak our own language, our mother tongue. As I told you, I am more comfortable in Cantonese. But when there's somebody who are not Chinese that are around you, be aware of that. Then try to speak English and try to learn English. No matter how challenging it is, if you have decided to come to a country that the official language is English, it's like if you don't know how to walk, how do you know how to run? It's like my mother, I really admire her. She came at the age of, uh, she's now 96, she came at the age of 70, and she kept asking me to teach her English, and I uh, tape a lot of conversation for her, even though she has not learned much, but uh, this is a kind of altitude that one should have. You should try your best to be able to communicate one another. Just imagine, Taraji, if I don't speak English, how can I communicate with you? At the end of the day, this is official language. So this is important. And second thing, sorry, I have to go back to this. We have to try to reach out to the other community. That's why when one of your um, uh, MTO Shama, uh, Shama Shodi approached me to do some of their community work, I jumped at the opportunity. I think it's important for me, it's obvious that I'm of Chinese descent, that I should work with people from different culture together. Uh, I, I like what you said, together we can win. Uh, we don't want it to be like South Africa, that we are like an isolated community. Even though this country encourage our own culture, we have to learn one another's culture. That's what makes it so beauty, beautiful, right? It's like United Nations. So this is very important uh, for your audience to so understand that we should try to appreciate different culture and then we will become a, a more gratifying and more understanding. And I think there'll be less war in this world and we can set a good example as Canadian. So to come back to your social media, I totally agree with you. 
that with the social media being so prevalent that you can easily get on that. So I think the government should think about how to have censorship on social media. I, I know it's not easy. We need some expert to think about. It's like, remember, Donald Trump was uh, being taken off from Twitter, right? So yeah. I, I think there's a way to do it. We shouldn't let this kind of racism, hate, crime, this kind of comments to be prevalent in the social media because many young people, they are not mature enough to tell the dark uh, from the bright side. So they can be easily brainwashed, so to speak. Um, this is like uh, used to be the communism propaganda. And we should think about, I think, the the, the, the all the bright minds in the academic world, in the tech world, can think about a way how to censor all these kind of hatred commentaries coming out from social media. And I, I, I should leave it to the expert to do that. I think if we don't do that, it can be extremely uh, detrimental that we are the younger people's mind will be really uh, so-called damage, their brain will be damaged. This is one thing. Another thing is, that's why I think this anti-racism education day is important that I hope the government can organize more events in the workplace, in crown corporation, maybe in school, in hospital, and try to get talk about it. We have to talk about it. We have to be raising the awareness of every single British Columbian that this is not acceptable, that we cannot let this hate crime, especially now, this year is more against Asian Canadian. Actually, to be honest, I look at the figures, the hate crime against Muslims and Jews are also in the last 10 years on the rise. And now and then you heard about the killings in the mosque. That really is so upsetting. I remember I was at the uh, Quebec City Mosque Memorial Day, and it really breaks my heart too. I just don't understand how people can do something like that. It's like what happened in Atlanta, killing eight lives. Um, even though they say it might not be related to racism, but most of them are Asian again. So we have to keep talking about that. And I think people, the audience who are listening to this program, they should go to the small soul media and condemn this kind of hate crime. We should bombard the social media with the right message. And we, we should fight this battle together. Don't think that it has nothing to do with you. You never know. I mean, one day, if we don't try to put in our effort to stop this from spreading, it's like the virus. It's like COVID-19 was happening. It, there might be variant. It, it, racism can have variant as well. So that's why. I applaud your uh, Islam Unravel Anti-Racism Initiative project. You, this is exactly the kind of thing that we should do. It's like two weeks ago, I went to the, um, the rally, the anti-Asian hate rally, stop anti-Asian uh, anti uh, hate rally. And I spoke about my own experience. And there's, I think, a thousand people there. That day was not good weather. And I'm quite impressed there's still so many people that came up. I think we need to have more of this kind of event to raise awareness. And it's good to talk about it. Well, we should, uh, like me as an elected official, I try to, like you, to 
have this kind of Zoom meeting. Right now, we cannot have rallies, maybe, all the time because of the safety. But we can have this kind of Zoom. We can organize a Zoom of 100 people. At least we should do it step by step. Uh, I don't believe that we can eliminate racism, but at least we can reduce it to the bare minimum. And this is what Canada is about. And I think Canada can be can be really shine a light uh, to the whole world. And because this world is still full of, you know, a lot of um, conflict. And uh, I think as human beings, we should really think hard on what life is all about. Agreed. And you said it very well, Teresa. And I think we're allies and I'm looking forward to working with you on anti-racist initiatives uh, uh, because I did we stand and and uh, I wanted to honor you and your work and and appreciate to work with you. And uh, we want to share this uh, with our audience uh, to, to really convey the fact that there are people like yourself that are examples that you can come 30 years ago. Uh, work hard, have a successful business, bring all different communities together and also be an elected official representing uh, the province, representing Asians, but also representing other communities as, as, as a role model. So thank you, Teresa, for joining us and uh, looking forward to connecting soon on, on the, hopefully this May 30th day for Anti-Racism Day. We'd love to work with you on that as well.